This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app. Jump on your smart trainer and jump into Zwift. Kreuzer, or welcome. Tom, it's our final episode before Christmas. Are you feeling Christmassy? I am feeling massively Christmassy, G. I've got to be honest, the tree is up. Uh, there's random bits of tinsel decorating, random bits of the house. The weather has obviously been absolutely freezing in the northwest of England. Minus 10 on the school run the other day. Ooh. But it did mean that everything looked very, very festive and white and frosty and beautiful. How about you? Yeah, nice. Um, not feeling Christmassy too much, really, because... Um yeah, as I said, obviously it's nice to be riding around in shorts and jersey, but you know we're in Mallorca where it's not really um, anything Christmassy going on. Although we did have a Christmas um, party uh, that we have every year with the team on training camp, so that's nice. We get you know the chefs do a big Christmas um, dinner, turkey, all the trimmings, nice bit of um, yeah Christmas pudding. There's a tiramisu as well just to keep the Italians happy. Bit of panettone. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a great day. We get the young guys to do a Christmas quiz where everyone has to dress up as well. Get your Christmas jumpers on. And well, then... did I see a picture of you in fancy dress? Yeah, so me, Swifty and Luke went as three wise men or three kings. I like. To did think you take that men. costume with you? Because it was, it was such a quality costume. I thought there's no way you've sourced that in Mallorca on the day. Oh, no, we were planning well, bef- well in advance, Tom. Well, to be honest, Swifty was. Swifty bought it, brought them out for me and Luke. But um, yeah, we nailed it. And Pauline, mountain biker, was just signed with Ineos as well. She was um, Mary, and we were the three mm. wise men or three kings. And uh, yeah, we also have the worst dress. Who has to wear a forfeit? So last year it was like a little skimpy thong and uh, a Christmas thong, obviously shiny. And the physio lost. He actually he went all in, and he um, did he. Yeah, he really like enjoyed it, I think, as well. But because of that, <laughs> I think everyone made an effort this year. So it was great. And there was some cracking costumes. And uh, yeah, good night. The beard that you were wearing as a king was so much better than any facial hair you could ever deliver in the real world. <laughs> so I did say that um, it was the right colour, though. It looked like oh, I was actually yeah. did have a beard. Um, might have had to have a few more grey hairs though to be honest these days but yeah I think we pulled it off well didn't we Tom it was a great image the other image uh, I saw this week that you put out on your social feeds G was uh, a picture of a little coffee stop on a training ride on your camp and um, let's just say the younger generation were less up for conversation with you than you were (laughs) yeah I thought that was quite funny really it was more of a joke because you know we've been riding together for four hours by that point so Everyone just gets there. Uh, you check your phone, don't you? See who's messaged you. If you got anything, you know, if if the banker calling you for something, I don't know, important stuff. But uh, yeah, they're all sat there on their phones. So I thought I'd take a little snap. But then Magnus was one of them. Magnus Sheffield, who we're gonna have on the pod at some point. He uh, got me back really, and um, there was a photo of me on my phone of the previous day on the on the, at the cafe stop on my phone. So. I said it was just getting my Apple Pay out to pay. So it reminds me somewhat of that meme that's doing the rounds at the moment, uh, G. So producer Lou will dig that one out and stick it on our social feeds. Um, you also made a pre-Christmas announcement. Um, officially, it is out there now. You are racing the Giro in 2023. You happy with that? Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. It just, uh, you know, I've done the Tour 12 times now. It's still the biggest bike race in the world. Still love it. But the Giro's just... Well, crashing out of it the last two times I've done it, kind of be nice to go back and at least try and finish the thing. I have finished it twice before, but yeah, and it's it's got some good time trials in it. Two normal ones and then a third one, which goes up. It's got 11k flat and then 7k at about 12.5%, so it's not really a typical time trial. But yeah, it's exciting. It's something a bit different, do a slightly different program. Going to start in Tour Down Under in January. Um. And yeah, all guns blazing for the Giro. So we got a super lineup for it as well. Strong, a strong long list. So yeah, looking forward to getting there. Kind of um, 
I like winding up the Italians on our team as well. So the day after, we all went out for food, all the riders, and um, I ordered a Hawaiian pizza with extra pineapple. Didn't go down very well, Tom. (laughs) Are you slightly disappointed or are you excited that a previous guest on the GTCC this series, Remco, is also going to the Giro? Yeah, obviously he's one of the biggest talents around at the minute, so um, it'd be good to race against him. Not gonna lie, it'd be nice if he didn't go, if he just went to the tour. <laughs> but um no, he's he's incredible, isn't he? A world champion, won the Vuelta. He's only what, twenty one, I think. Super young, super talented. It's madness, so. isn't it? Yeah, a little bastard. But um yeah, no, we'll we'll go there and have some fun. Well, hopefully he was reading the BBC Sports uh, website article about you doing the Giro because there was a typo in that. Um, they said you were 26. That was <laughs> spotted by GTCC member Aaron Riseborough. So well spotted, Aaron. Hopefully that. Um, hopefully Remco saw that and it's put the fear of God into him. Most definitely. I'm sure it has, Tom. I'm sure it has. Right, let's get a guest on. We all love coffee, don't we, G? Never do this pod without one, Tom. Or a ride, actually. Yeah, there is nothing better than a quick coffee for a cold winter ride or before hopping on Zwift. So, I know we'll both be delighted with the next sponsor of this podcast, Origin Coffee. Also, there is a cheeky discount code we've got for all our listeners. Origin Coffee are one of the leading brands on the coffee scene and they get just how much cyclists love coffee. And get this, Tom. Origin's director of coffee... Freda is a three times UK cup tasting champion. Not once, Garrett, not twice, but three times. That is pretty impressive. Would you like another great fact? All online orders are roasted and shipped the very same day. Super speedy, just how we like it on this podcast. They also have a rewards program, so customers like you and me can earn points and get cash back every time we shop online. So why not try one of their delicious espresso blends or an interesting single origin coffee? There are so many profiles to try, and all the coffee comes in home compostable bags. So if you want to order some Origin Coffee and get a massive 30% off, just go to origincoffee.co.uk and use the code GTCC30 at checkout. That's the code GTCC30 at checkout. Go and get yours today. Enjoy! Tom, for our final guest before Christmas, we're joined by a man who, well, I think he might love going faster than than me, even. He loves cycling, but he's not necessarily a cyclist as his day job, but he's one of the most talented young drivers in the Formula One circuit, on the Formula One circuit. He drives Mercedes, finished fourth in the 2022 Drivers' World Championship, head of his teammate Lewis Hamilton, not bad, and he took his maiden F1 victory in Sao Paulo. Please welcome to the GTCC, George Russell. Thanks for joining, mate. Thank you very much. I like the intro. Very yeah. nice. Oh, I always struggle a bit with them when I got to read it out. But uh, <laughs> no, yeah, appreciate you coming on. And uh, well, straight into it. I guess we first met a couple of weeks ago. We went on the bikes. Jim was there. Big boss of Ineos, Jim Ratcliffe and Dave B. Um, nice little ride, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was all a little bit last minute for me. Uh, Jim texted me the night before saying, do you want to come out for a ride uh, tomorrow? Just quickly popping over into, into Italy, probably an hour there, hour back, stopped for a little coffee and said we'd be going off at 9.30 in the morning. I knew I had a meeting that day at 12. So I thought, right, it was huh. going to be an hour there, hour back. I'll just make it back in time for the meeting thinking the coffee might be about 10 15 minutes and then yeah. you know, three cappuccinos later and an hour and a half at the coffee shop <laughs> well past my meeting um no it was beautiful absolutely beautiful though and um yeah it was nice to join you on the ride yeah it's not often the coffee stops longer than the ride but uh <laughs> it, it was good but i do you remember jim was like he obviously turned up he had a bit of a cough didn't he and we were all a bit like oh maybe yeah. we should just you know take it easy ride to menton maybe just ride 20 minutes have a coffee ride home and he was determined. No, yeah, yeah. So he was, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. So he just loves it, you know. And um, But I was, I was planning to go um, meet him for a coffee the following day and he texted me that morning saying, I can't make it because I'm feeling a bit worse, worse for wear. So yeah. I think we, uh, yeah, we destroyed him a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, he messaged me. I think it must have been Tuesday. He said he was fully manned down, like yeah. temperature, like above 100 or something. And so, yeah, but luckily, yeah, it didn't knock him out for too long. But um, no. Yeah, 
It was one of those rides, Tom. It was obviously it was obviously a tough one. Yeah, I mean, he was the oldest man in that group, wasn't he? To be fair to him. Yeah, I was not too sure. Uh, I I mean, I cycle rarely. I, I mean, I I like my cycling, but living in in the UK, it's not the safest mm. places in the world to to go cycling. And I'd often just go to Richmond Park. I'd always do a lot of cycling in the off season when I'd go on my training camp in in Lanzarote. Um, but always in Richmond, I'd feel like I'm on a strong ride. And then you've got these you know, semi-pro guys, you know, old old <laughs> blokes just, just flying by me. And I was thinking, <laughs> well, maybe Jim's going to be like a dark horse here. And I'm going with the three of you guys. And I'm just going to be left, uh, left at the back struggling and embarrassing myself on on the first day but um he's because he's obviously a, a big chap as well isn't he yeah yeah that reminds me do you remember at the very start of the ride because obviously dave um or charlie dave sort of like right our man brought a bike for you and you jumped on gyms thinking it was yours and you're <laughs> rising it around giving it a quick sizing up and then everyone's like uh, you're on jim's bike mate <laughs> you're on the wrong it was nice fit me perfectly <laughs> had all the little uh the seat but I don't even know what you call it, the little uh, squidgy seat and the handlebar uh, sort of damper thing. Mm. Um, so I thought, oh, they're looking after me here. <laughs> yeah. So you say in season or off season, you ride the bike a lot. What what sort of training do you do in season then? Because it must be quite hard. You do a lot of traveling around. and Yeah, definitely. It's it's really difficult in season, to be honest. The, the travel is probably the biggest killer throughout a Formula 1 season, something that a lot of people don't really appreciate, I think. You know, Formula One is is seen to be this uber glamorous lifestyle going around the world to the nicest places, to the nicest cities. And although that is the fact what we are doing, when we get there, we're there to do a job. So it's airport, hotel, track, hotel, back to the airport and, and you're away again. And you sometimes find yourself not even visiting one single thing in that whole city during your, that time you've been there and jumping on flights 10, 12 hours long, eight hours, big time zone shifts. It's so, so tricky. Um, so it's it's often after a race, you're sort of resting, recovering, and then suddenly you're back on another flight to another race, um, going to the factory, to the simulator, debriefing with the engineers. So we've got to work really hard pre-season to build up that fitness, and you're sort of just maintaining it sort of throughout the first half of the season. We have a break in the middle, gain the fitness back and then maintaining it until the end of the year. So, um, yeah, it's just, just one of the challenges, I guess. So with that whole simulator stuff, is that because, for instance, if someone is new into F1, they don't know any or they might have done some of the circuits. But do you do a lot in the simulator and then just rock up to the circuit and do your that walk round or whatever and then race? <laughs> or how does it, how's it work? I, yeah, effectively yes i mean uh, simulators are just uh, a very high-tech playstation uh basically so that's we're not allowed to test in between the races so probably 15 years ago f1 teams were allowed to go testing but a day of testing with all of the engineers the mechanics the cost of running the cars you know it's in the hundreds of thousands and it's just not um yeah, cost efficient to do that. So all of our preparation now is is on the simulator. They are in- incredibly good, but the fact is you don't really have that fear factor mm. in a in a simulator. You go into a corner flat out, and if you spin off, you press the restart button and you go again. And obviously, in reality, and and I'm, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's it's very different when you're doing your sport and you're going flat out and you know what the consequences may be. Have you had any big crashes? I mean, we don't like to talk about crashes on this pod because I've had a fair <laughs> few, but have you had any like big ones in your career or, um, or scary yeah, ones? I've definitely, I've had, there was this one um, racetrack in, in Wales actually in, in Pembury. Yeah. A little tiny circuit. You didn't race there. It was kind of like a test track. Very old school. And on the exit of one of these corners, the barriers were a, a tyre barrier, but ingrained in the banking. Now, that was effectively like concrete. So I once lost it on this test day and I'm bouncing ag- across the grass, heading towards this barrier. And I just, I hit it. It was like hitting a brick wall. My head hit the steering wheel. I was just in so much pain, my, my chest and my lungs, you know, struggling to breathe. And I woke up the following morning and my ribs were in a bit of a, in a dodgy place. So that was probably my 
biggest, my biggest uh, off, but probably the scariest one I had was a crash I had with Valtteri Bottas uh, in 2021, where I was in, in Italy in, in a track called Imola, and I'm going down the straight. It had just gone from uh, wet to, to, to slick, so the track had just dried out, and there was just one dry line, and I'm right in this slipstream, and I pulled out the slipstream to overtake him with my uh, my rear wing open. And we're doing about 330, 340. Oh, and man. I just put a wheel on the on the damp stuff and I just lost the car. And I just crashed into the side of him flat out at the end of the straight. And I'm just sort of going sideways towards the tire barrier. You've got carbon fiber flying everywhere. And that was probably the scariest moment in my career because it happened just so suddenly, so unexpectedly. Like sometimes you've, you you sometimes see a crash happening. Yeah, um, yeah. Like in our sport, if you've lost the car and you're heading towards a tire barrier, you know this is going to hurt. But that, it just was a, a split second. And I just sort of didn't know what, I couldn't see where I was going thereafter. And I didn't know if I was going to hit the tire barriers. I didn't know if the car was going to crash into me. Uh, the adrenaline was just sort of running through my veins. So that was, um, yeah, that was probably probably the scariest one of, of my career. I can imagine. We actually raced around in Miller on our bikes. We had the World Championship Did you? there. Yeah, COVID year. It, got, it was supposed to be, I can't wow. remember where it was supposed to be. It got rearranged. It's a great track, isn't it? On a bike, it, it was okay. <laughs> but um, yeah. I'll take that as a no then. <laughs> no it was it was fairly hard it's quite up and down isn't it the last yeah it is yeah 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 so it was like the last little bit of our race obviously but um mm. yeah no i kind of yeah the fastest i've ever gone in an actual car on a circuit is like i don't know um what was it that we drove it so we had a little uh track day before 2012 olympics basically where we got to drive like an r bath and a you know, a Ferrari and, you know, thinking like, oh, wow, we're going to drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis. But they were so clapped out. They were just like, yeah. you know, people <laughs> had just ragged them silly. So it was, but it was just uh, absolutely loved it though. Because, you know, a bunch of bike riders thinking we can drive fast, basically. You think, oh, we know what to do. Oh, mate, it was carnage. But yeah. <laughs> I think that's the case with all like uh, professionals or athletes who are sort of at the top of their sport, they think they can like jump in something else <laughs> yeah. and be straight away on the top. And suddenly you learn no, no chance, no chance. 100%. Did you find, George, with that crash, because, gee, we've talked about some of your crashes. Um, as you say, we try not to do it on your own podcast. But <laughs> the, the thing that always staggers me is next time you're out on your bike that you don't have one of those existential moments when you look down at the 28 mil tyres and just think, oh, my God, that's all that's keeping me up. So, George, after that crash, how hard is it for that crash not to stay in your head? The next time you're trying an overtake a manoeuvre or the next time you're going around the outside of someone, how do you block all that stuff out? I think it's... I don't really know, to be honest. I think you're just so focused on the job at hand. There's no time to even think about anything else. There's no time to think about the past. You think potentially about some of your other experiences, but only to try and help you in the in the current uh, situation you're in. And I think, you know, those incidents are inevitable. And if anything, they sort of make you stronger and you learn from it. But you can't, I think the moment you start fearing these things, you know, it's probably time to hang up, hang up your boots because you've got to risk it. You've got to risk it all sometimes if you want those high rewards and um, you've got to push those boundaries. And the only way you're going to find the limit is if you, you have that off uh, here and there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think sometimes it's also it's easier to just get back straight into a race rather than, for instance, training. Because then when you're going down a, a climb, you just take it easier in training, don't you? But then you have more time to think about it. And that's when it does cross your mind sometimes. Like, oh, if I did slap off now, you know, it's 20 foot drop down there. But in a race, it's almost like you just take that pin out and you're just like, right, we're racing now. And you, you just don't think about it. You go autopilot and as George says, you just got to do it, you know, otherwise, yeah, there's no point in racing anymore. Yeah. I think like think, thinking about things is probably the worst thing yeah. you can do sometimes. Yeah. And that's the great thing with racing. Sometimes you're not thinking, you're so instinctive and you're just, you're just going for it. You know, there's, if there's an opportunity, you're going for it. You're going to, you're attacking this corner, you're going flat out, you're just going for it. So if you've got a moment to stop and think, you know, you're losing, losing lap time already. So in Formula One, is it like 
cycling where you, I'm not asking you don't have to name names now because I don't want you to uh, make any enemies. <laughs> but are there some people where you're like, oh, he's a bit overly aggressive. You know, he you can sort of bully this guy. You sort of. I thought this was. Go- I was going to thought he's going to go straight into the personality of who you don't like. It. <laughs> <laughs> that's the second. Oh, I asked you that at the coffee yeah, shop. So we won't. We won't yeah, exactly. That <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, you definitely learn over time which drivers are a bit more aggressive, which ones uh, maybe a bit more reckless. I think you always go in if you're the attacking driver. If you place your car in the right place, there's no need to treat any driver differently if you do the right thing yourself it doesn't matter if they're the most aggressive driver or the least aggressive driver if you've done your thing right they can't defend from that but if you're doing a half-hearted overtake move or at the race you're not too sure and and you're you know maybe squeezing a driver um when you potentially shouldn't be you know that with the aggressive ones and the reckless ones you're probably going to end up colliding and crashing whereas some drivers you know they have a bit more respect they've got a bit more awareness of the surroundings i think that's probably the biggest thing for us not you're so enclosed in your in your car i think what so many people don't appreciate is we sat so low down we can only see the top 10 centimeters of the tires at the front we can't really rotate our heads because you're locked in there because of all the safety requirements so there's so many blind spots. Uh, it's so difficult to have that that awareness that when you've got a car behind you and a slipstream, you know, they can be 100 meters behind or 50 meters behind and just close so quick, you know, 25, 30 kilometer hour uh, speed differences. And they can just jump on you. And if you're not really aware, that's where the, the incidents happen. But I think it's just experience. You, you learn about drivers, you learn their traits. But as I said, you're sort of in control. I think you're in control of your own destiny and you have to take it into your own hands. There's this amazing quote, George, from Sterling Moss that you meet, you might be aware of. And, and gee, we might have mentioned this to Cal Crutchlow when he came on the pod um, in the previous series. Um, and Sterling said, well, so, I think someone asked him, George, how do you do what you do going at those speeds? And he said, speed, the whole, the whole business of it is that it feels slow when you're driving well the corners come up to you slowly. He says, when it feels fast, then you're in trouble. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, definitely. I think when when you're in that rhythm and you're in that flow, everything feels easy. You know, when you're, when you're having your day, it's easy. When you're winning, sometimes it's easy. The times that are incredibly difficult is when you're given absolutely everything and you're trying so hard but somebody's just that little bit faster and you're you're asking yourself like how like what is going on here why why are they a little bit faster why can't i get more out of my car why can't i get more out of myself and and then you're almost on this downward spiral because you're trying harder you're overdriving you're doing things out of desperation almost which you wouldn't ordinarily do whereas when you're in that zone when you're sort of leading a race and you're confident and you're at one with the car, you're sort of just, everything's in, in perfect harmony really. And um, yeah, everything sort of slows down and your heart rate drops and it's such a, like a, a great place to be. In. And that's obviously the dream, but it's, it's those times when you're behind and things aren't really adding up, that it sort of really tests you as a, as a person. Is it the same for you, G? When you're riding really well, whether it's a stage race or a one-day race, or maybe even going back to your track days, riding team pursuit, do you get the same sensations that George has just described? Yeah, definitely. Like, say in a team pursuit, it's almost like when you're waiting to get on the front, you're like, oh, come on, I and get back on the front now. And there's other times when you're like, holy moly, I need at least another three laps to recover. You know, it's just like when you're on it, and like in a road race, it's like almost like you just, can go wherever you want to go you can just you can just see things like happening like 10 seconds before they happen type thing whereas when you're on the limit and you're suffering like you basically you know you tend to have your head down eyes half closed and you just see things 10 seconds late rather than you know being clear and knowing what to do so 100 percent, yeah like and then yeah just when you're on a good day like you say it's just everything's just you know, like when people go on about, oh, he, Messi always has more time on the ball. I think it's like he probably does make 
gain an extra couple of tenths of a second himself but also he knows what to do with that time I think rather than just like oh he's just got more time I think he can gain a bit but then he also yeah he uses that time like better than anyone else type thing so and knows how to do it and whatever so um yeah it's a bit there's a big difference between it all flowing nicely and just going to pot basically but one thing that's always surprised me with formula one is the radio like when you hear the driver talking back to the the team um it always seems so calm and just like you know um definitely not always <laughs> <laughs> the bits that i've seen anyway i'm just like wow like because in a bike race i can imagine like if we had well they have been filming the cars because like you know the drive to survive thing we've had a similar thing with the tour de france in 2022 was the first year so that's going to come out yeah. in 2023 so we might see a bit of the in-car radio stuff but on the bikes it always seems a bit more like blah, 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 like shouting like obviously you've got the wind and everything is a bit more like chaotic anyway but yeah it always seems so like and with the tactics as well do you, i obviously knew there's a lot of tactics involved but it seems like you can win a race purely based off the decisions that it and are those tactics basically what i'm asking are those tactics down to you or is it team or is it discussion beforehand or how is it how does that work i think you've got to be a i mean every morning we go through on a sunday we go through all the like um potential scenarios and they've got these simulation softwares which will you know churn out a million different scenarios and i don't think ever the scenario that that uh, yeah. pans out is the one that has been Happens. simulated <laughs> before but it always gives you a good indication of what you have to do uh, if a certain circumstance does arise. I think the big thing in our sport is when there's been a crash and there's a safety car, you know, what do you do? Do you stay out on track? Do you pit? Do you put new tires and potentially lose a couple of positions to then try and overtake them again? Are your tires still in a fresh state? Are they dropping off? Are they in a good position? And you've got to, I think, use that constant um, communication between driver and team to say, right, if there is a, a safety car, I think I can get these tyres working again and I think I can still stay in this position. Whereas there might be a circumstance where you say, right, I need to back off it. I need to lose a couple of positions, but give me fresh tyres so I can be the attacking driver. But I think probably the main difference between us and and you guys, the cycling guys, it's, is the physical strain you guys go under. I think for us, the big one is the sort of psychological and mental strain taking on all the information, trying to understand how to attack, how to defend, managing the tires, managing the brakes, managing the engine, trying to drive fast. Yeah, that concentration must be like massive because what is it, an hour and a half? Yeah, I think the average, yeah, hour and a half probably on average. That's a long time to all... be concentrated like that, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, it and it's sort of like you're getting more fatigued. It's as as the race progresses, and there's been races where you're sort of physically struggling at the end. So then that cognitive side of things becomes even more difficult. You're struggling to focus. You're struggling to do the switch changes on your steering wheel. You're struggling to sort of communicate with the team, and then everything is just is is becoming increasingly difficult. I mean, from our side to drive one lap in a Formula One car isn't the most physical thing in the world, but it's when you're you're pushing flat out, sprinting for an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes straight, nonstop. You're, you've got the heat, you know, just building up inside of you. You've got your race suit on, fireproofs. The cockpit can sometimes be 60 degrees Celsius. And it's like hot air coming through from the, the cars in front of you. And it's just like you're you're sort of sometimes um, just waiting for that checker flag to to be shown. That's ridiculous, sixty degrees. Do you do any like heat acclimatization? Do you do like a lot of sauna stuff and things? Or yeah, I mean we we focus it on certain races, but I'd always be going to the gym with like three layers on, yeah. like properly sweating really? out sauna sessions. I, I think the worst race for me this year was in Miami. I lost four kilos in an hour and forty what? minutes. So it's, um, and this is like, a, I think something that I, I, what's a little bit annoying with Formula One is you don't really have the, um, from the outside, you can't really see this. 
you know, if you're playing football, if you see you guys cycling, you see the the struggle you're going through when you're pushing flat out. Whereas when you see a Formula One car, you've got to drive with the helmet on. It's just sort of like man and machine as one. It's kind of one machine and you don't really appreciate what, you know, that person's going through inside. What about when you were on the, the, the start line, George? Because I often wonder... Gee, when I've watched you in a time trial, certainly that last time trial in 2018 when you won the tour and there was the individual time trial on the final Saturday. So you've basically got the tour within your grasp and the point where you are at the top of the start ramp and you hear the beeps, like what that does to your heart rate. But George, you're getting that every week. You're sitting there on the grid and you're waiting to go. I mean, what is that like? I think the worst part for us is probably the build-up to the race, you know, we always race in the afternoon, roughly three o'clock. So you wake up, you know, eight in the morning, have your breakfast and you're sort of thinking about the race. And it, for me, it's those moments where I've got 10 minutes to myself where you start almost overthinking, overanalyzing. But as soon as you put the helmet on, everything goes out the window. And it's, when you're looking at those start lights, it's like there's not another car in sight. You're just so focused on those on those lights and I think you're sort of in you're sort of in like your happy place almost you know this is sort of where I'm meant to be I'm you know excited for the race ahead and you're just so focused on just on that one goal which is to try and win so it's I think in our sport there's so many external things that go on with you know the strategy meetings the car setup working with your whole team with all of your mechanics the marketing side of things there's so much craziness to the sport that actually whenever you get that time in the car, it's quite precious and it makes you uh, sort of appreciate what you do even more. With those lights, just one thing, it might be a stupid question, but is it always the same um, like sequence and time between them going on and off? So, you know, like in athletics, no. <laughs> it's different, isn't it? It's just the man. He's just like... Yeah. On your marks. Pull him, pull Depends him on the starter, yeah. No, it's it's always, I don't know the exact figure. I think it's all, always between half a second and two seconds. Oh, so it doesn't, so it doesn't sound like, a, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a lot, but obviously if you try and preempt it, yeah. <laughs> you've got to get it wrong. I, I totally get what you were saying as well about the overthinking thing or having time to think because as Tom said in the tour that year, for me, it was simple. Like every day I was just doing the same thing and then it come to the TT and it was exactly that. Normally we'd start the stage 11, 12 o'clock, but this TT... Obviously, they start, last rider goes first, guy is leading, goes last. It was around four o'clock. So we did the recon in the morning. That was all good. You're just focused on seeing it again. you like autopilot almost. Then I had about three hours in this hotel room near the start, just lying there, just listening to podcasts, like random stuff about, <laughs> like, I was listening to 30 for 30 podcasts, actually, like American one about some boxer like in 1930s and I was like just anything to take my mind off it um and that was the first time I actually got a bit nervous and I was because I was thinking oh like the consequences of it like oh, if this goes well or if this goes badly like you know all this type of stuff and um but yeah once I started my warm-up and then you get into that routine that you always have you just go like autopilot then and um it's easy like those beeps like in the velodrome we have the beeps for because there's a lot of like time trialing on the track and uh when i hear the beeps i get nervous but then it just like takes you back to like whoa yeah that's like their nervous times but when you're actually yeah, sure. on the bike and you hear it it's again like you you breathe in you, you you breathe differently with each beep and it's it's almost like you're in it then the worst bit is those yeah, you're in the zone. yeah when you're sat on those seats waiting to go up onto the line those two minutes when you just sat there next to the boys you're like here we go boys like yeah. olympic final and then you got like the chime because in London they had this big, uh, big Ben chime, and um, yeah, I'll always remember that now. Like you just like, what? Do they really have to do that just to add to the atmosphere. Like? <laughs> but I think in that that same regard, I think tennis players have it the worst. Like they often, if you're playing before the final, you're waiting for the first match to finish. And you don't know if that's going to be finished in an hour and a half or in four hours time. I've always thought that. Like, how would you deal with, like, not knowing your start time? Like, when you're actually getting out there. And there's so... Yeah, when you're going to have food, when you're going to yeah. the toilet, when you're getting, like, just getting ready for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, when they they talk about, you know, putting the last point behind you and all, like, having to really be, like, boom, that's 
done now and moving on and yeah psychologically that must be a big uh challenge how much is it psychological for you guys compared to sort of a physical side of things i think like it's so close at the top now like physically i think the mental side is where it's won and lost to be honest like i think yeah because it's so competitive like not necessarily the tour but all bike racing now these days and i think uh, you can just see a lot of people like even in this team now we've got a lot of young guys and you can see some of them overthink things and worry about the small things a bit too much like worrying about how many grams of carbs i have in this hour whereas like they probably forgot to charge their gears or something you know and their gears run out halfway through a training ride or well that's what i do actually so <laughs> but basically yeah they you just do the basics right you know for them um yeah, but yeah like when it comes to the big races yeah i think psychologically because in the in the tour there's a lot a lot of time to to think as well on a five-hour stage if you're suffering early on you think oh i'm not feeling too good today i've got one of the hardest climbs in the tour on the last climb of the day how am i going to do and some guys might cracks other guys might get through it so yeah psychologically it's it's big i think and it must be the same with you guys you know if you're leading and you're like oh i haven't won a formula one race yet and oh, i'm leading now and just don't mess this up and those thoughts if you're leading for a long time as well like yeah definitely i think the the biggest one for uh, psychologically is like a qualifying lap you know that qualifying lap can make or break mm. your weekend it's so difficult to overtake in formula one if you start on the front row you're going to probably finish in the top two if you have a bad qualifying you're nowhere so you know you travel around to the other side of the world and you've got 90 seconds that's so going to make or break your whole weekend and you know the, the talent of all the drivers in formula one it's you know every single driver in f1 is a very very good driver and everybody's capable of pole positions everybody's capable of race wins but it's when that pressure ramps up it comes down to you know psychologically just being in that right right space to to nail it and you know when you're approaching that first corner it sort of sets you up for the rest of a lap so almost yeah. that one corner is the most important corner of your whole weekend to give you the best chance of winning so um and as i said everybody's capable of it and i'm sure it's the same in your sport there's so many guys who are capable of of doing it but there's only a very few who actually um, follow through and can achieve it what was that feeling like in sao paulo then george this year when it finally comes to pass your first f1 race win yeah it was an incredibly magical moment to be honest obviously something you dream of as a kid something you work so hard towards i guess you never know how are you going to react? Are you going to be, you know, celebrating and want to be going out partying? Are you going to be emotional? Are you going to be uh, psychologically drained from everything? And for me, it was just such a relief. And it's sort of what you were saying before. I had, I was leading that race almost every single lap. And at one point, everything was pretty, pretty straightforward. I had a, a good gap to to Lewis in second. You know, ten seconds just managing that that gap. But then suddenly there was a crash. There was a safety car. And all of that hard work you've done has just disappeared. And he was on slight, he was on slightly fresher tires because I had some old tires on from qualifying. And I knew that as uh, obviously we went through this in those strategy meetings before. So I'm thinking, you know, shit, I've got Lewis Hamilton behind me now. Is uh, he, he's been mega fast in this race? This this gap I pulled out is just straight in the bin. And we got a 14 lap sprint until the end. So, you know, when I crossed that line, it was just so much relief because of that pressure I was under. Um, but a huge amount of emotion just, it was one of a few races that I didn't have any of my my family with me or my girlfriend with me just because obviously, you know, we're racing in, in Sao Paulo. It's uh, not the most convenient places to to get to. And just knowing what it would have meant to all of them because we've been on this journey together from from day one um but then equally knowing how much it meant to the team you know there was a there was probably at least five people after that race from our team crying with emotion <laughs> uh because of how how tricky this season's been how much effort everybody's put in and at one point we sort of felt like we weren't ever going to get a reward for all of that hard work so that was probably that was probably the most special thing 
to me, more especially than winning the race itself, was just seeing the effect it had on so many people, seeing how happy it made everybody in our team, you know, the 2,000 people back in, in the UK were just absolutely buzzing. And it was um, knowing that you've contributed towards that was 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 pretty special did you have a tear then as well oh, i definitely i definitely had a, definitely had a tear more than more than a better tear <laughs> i i burst out crying straight away to be honest i wasn't i definitely wasn't expecting that after probably three seconds after crossing the line because it was just <laughs> those last 14 laps or whatever it was it was a full-on sprint the pace was so high we was all on, you know, pretty brand new tires. Um, it was a cold day in in racing and in Formula One. When it's when it's cool, the tires work better, so you don't the tires don't overheat. And you don't really need to manage them. So every single lap is like a qualifying lap. When the track's hot and it's out, it's hot um, in the air. You have to manage everything a lot, lot more. So the pace just generally is a lot, a lot slower. So those last fourteen laps, it was just absolutely flat out and just. As you said before, it's like knowing if you make one little mistake, mm. you give the opportunity to the car behind and that's sort of game over. Um, Especially being Lewis Hamilton as well, though, because, well, yeah. it's Lewis Hamilton. That must have added to it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think when you're in the car, it doesn't really matter who's who's behind. You're just focused on, on the job itself. It was just because it was my teammate. I knew that he was very, very fast mm. on that day. He had slightly fresher tyres and just knowing it was going to be very tricky to to keep him him behind. So, and and knowing how much it would have meant to everybody, I think you know that was going to be the first victory of the season for the team. We both equally wanted that, you know, so bad badly, and it was uh, you know going to be hugely significant. But I think you know there's been so much effort between you know the both of us this year pushing the team. It's it's a really great dynamic we have, and probably better than um, any other teammates on the grid because we're at so many drivers their main goal is just to beat their teammate that's what that's always I was going to be my yeah I was going to say that that's what it seems to be on drive to survive isn't it it's like the teammate's your biggest rival almost yeah well it's with your teammate you know that he's the only one who's got the exact same equipment as you you know for example this year you know Lewis Lewis hasn't hasn't won a race whereas last year he won 10 or 11 races he hasn't just suddenly forgot how to drive yeah <laughs> um unfortunately the car's just not not been working for us this year and it's not been as competitive and that's the same as drivers further down the grid you know if you put every if you put every single driver in f1 in a mercedes ferrari or red bull they'll all be capable of winning races it doesn't mean that they necessarily deserve to be there over the likes of you know, Lewis, Charles, or Max. Of course not. If you're if you're the best, you you manage to get yourself in the best seats. But within reason, everybody's capable of it, and um, you just got too much of a difference between the best car and the worst car. How would you be G with that team dynamic? Because there are a few similarities between what you've gone through in cycling, in that sometimes your own teammate can be your greatest rival in a stage race, um, and you obviously had that internal competition with Chris Froome when you won the tour in 2018 but there's other times when a a team is just solely focused on helping the team leader across the line so how would you find that mentally do you think yeah it's um it is different to cycling in a way but at the same time as you say even in like team pursuit or road cycling like your biggest competition for starting the race to, to begin with is your teammate and but I've always found that the the stronger the competition, as long as the characters there are the right characters and there's no massive egos, it's the best thing for the team. You know, that internal competition pushes everyone in training. You know, I moved down to Monaco mainly because Froomey and Richie Port lived down here, who were the best climbers at the time. And it was just chasing them day in, day out, like pushing myself, trying to be better than them and or at least catch them up first. And um that's what pushes us all on and you know same like when you're in a training camp that's amplified again because you got eight to or like in Mallorca when there's all the whole team 30 of us and everyone's trying to do the right thing and everyone's those standards just get pushed higher and higher and I think that's what's uh what makes everyone better and then but then at the same time when it comes to the race you have to be able to put that aside and do what's best for the team and 
yeah, like you say, with me and Froomey, 2018, I felt I had a great chance of winning, but Froomey was going for his fifth Tour de France, which was a rec- would equal the record number of wins there. So he was desperate for that. And it was a fine balance. Like It was more, let's just make sure we win this race with one of us first and not race each other and end yeah, up losing definitely. it to someone else. Unfortunately, me and Froomey had a good relationship and we were able to be really open with it and, and not flick each other, basically. Um, and we had a good team around us as well to really help us do that. So fortunately, it, it all worked out. But it is a funny way of sort of uh, of working, really. I think if you put, as you say, if you put too much focus on the the guy within your your own team, yeah. you'll probably end up falling behind and losing out to someone else. You sort of need that internal um, sort of comp- firstly competition, but that sort of teamwork and camaraderie to sort of push you both forward to give you at least an opportunity yeah and use it as a positive in that each of you can you can share that pressure it's not one guy that's like for me it worked well because i was like well Froomey's the main man you know he's won the last four or you know he's won four in five years everyone's talking about him no one's really looking at me as much i went up the road one day and took a load of time in the jersey and then suddenly like oh shit yeah g's pretty handy as well like we shouldn't have let him gain that time and (laughs) it's always like yeah it works like it, it can work well I'm going to change tack slightly because there's something I've been wondering while we've been chatting. So, uh, George, if we were to put you in the pro peloton, do you think you'd do better or worse than G in a Formula One car? <laughs> oh, I mean, I have no idea how your driving skill was. Oh, man, I'm uh, rapid. <laughs> <laughs> then I've got no chance, have I? No chance. Um, I mean, I think we'd equally be pretty rubbish um <laughs> <laughs> to be fair you weren't you weren't too bad on that cafe ride you'd be you got a feeling to me you look like a you're quite tall and and slim so like a dutch guy you know like good in the ardennes the classics yeah good mm. yeah okay. you'd be a decent right. climber like a guessing type yeah all right that, that's yeah, a big compliment mate. so you know well i feel like i mean we can put it to maybe not an f not an f1 car but we could definitely put it to the test couldn't we we'll get we'll get like a mercedes go to a track and 100 you know, whiz it round and see yeah uh, the thing is it'd have to be over quite a distance though because obviously if we just do one lap you're not going to be that far away so you, i think you'd be winning that competition um <laughs> i don't know mate but yeah, I'd, I'd be well up for that. Let's get it. Let's get it done, Tom. Okay. And George, if G were to sit in a Formula One car, because obviously this is something that ninety nine point nine nine percent of people never get to do, what would be the sensations that would most shock G? Would it be the strains through his head as he went round his first corner? Would it be even the effort of holding the steering wheel out in front of him? Let's try and put G in a virtual Formula One car. <laughs> I think. I mean without being disrespectful i don't think you'd be able to go fast enough to feel the strain on your body no i've I've heard that before yeah like guys who've driven it can't even get the tires warm enough to go fast you know that's it that's the thing it's it's did you see that top gear episode with richard hammond i think that's what i saw it on years ago yeah you know he's you're going so slow that the car's just not not working so we'd have to make sure it's like a really hot day and it's as easy as possible I think the thing that's most surprising to what was most surprising for me, and this was coming from a Formula 2 car to a Formula 1 car. So, you know, these are still pretty rapid cars. They go 300 kilometers an hour. The most impressive thing about an F1 car was the braking capacity. So you're going into a corner in an F1 car at 330k and you're braking 100 meters before the corner. And the car just stops. And I remember the first time I ever drove it, my head just got through forward. And by the end of the day, my eyes were actually bloodshot. I think I just wasn't used to the speed and just my body wasn't used to uh, those those forces. I think you get over time, you get used to the acceleration, you get used to the speed. But that, that braking capacity and the speed you can go through a fast corner is just unbelievable. And um, yeah, I think that'd probably be your your neck would be like trying to fly off your your shoulders, and uh, you feel it all through your core and your legs. And but as I said, over over a single lap, it's not it's not the most demanding thing in the world. It's just obviously as that race progresses on a physical circuit, when it's hot, you got all that you know um, 
cognitive load being thrown at you that's where it gets gets really tough but well if i'm going to be racing around for an hour we've got to get you up and down madonna at least five times then (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's do it let's do it quality there was a question Geraint, in this script and i think uh, our producer louise put it in there which was um asking who had the better guns between you and george (laughs) My feeling is that we should move on from this question because I'm not sure it's going to reflect well on you. Yeah. Are we recording visuals here or not? <laughs> we can. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I'll be the judge if you both want to reveal a gun. Oh, but I think I know which I, way I know this one go is first. going. <laughs> Look how big that is. I mean... Oh, my Lord. I think we're, oh, pretty, I mean, George, yeah, yeah, we're pretty, pretty equal there. Pretty equal. I mean, we're both pretty skinny. George, you're being too kind to we don't. We don't have the best bodies in the world, do we? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that was one thing I was going to ask. Um weight wise are you pretty steady the whole year like do you have because for me i find like my optimum weight i can be there for like two months and i I can't hold it like like do you have to be yeah i mean we have to manage it um it's more through a weekend where it's difficult to manage because you're losing so many fluids you know during practice you know we have um two practice sessions on, on a friday and we often do on the second practice probably 15 20 laps in a row where you still you know it's still physical and you're still um fatiguing through that but the team need to know exactly how much you weigh before a qualifying and before a race so the car isn't underweight so we have a weight limit which is 800 kilos mm. for the car and driver just to, to and start or no to end oh, so right, that's okay. uh w- without any fuel in so 800 kilos at the end of a race and end of a qualifying session um, so they obviously they they measure everything to like the last gram. You know how much weight you lose with the tires wearing, how much weight the brake pads lose by wearing through the race, how much oil you lose, how much fuel you lose. The bottom of the car has like this uh, this wooden plank. How much weights you lose in that as it's wearing through the race. All of these little things. How much weight me I as a driver lose through a race. So it's sort of, you, they need to calculate all of this stuff because you could be overweight at the beginning of the race, but once you've taken into consideration all of these things mm. that you've lost throughout, you could come in illegal at, at the end. Bonkers, isn't it? So technical, really. It's not like just jumping on a bike. It's, I mean, it might be similar f- for you, but the, so as as I said, like one of the races, I, I lost four kilos, but the sweat actually stays in my suit. So actually when I jump on oh. the scales... In my suit, I've only lost about a kilo, but we weigh the suit before and after the race because it obviously all that fluid just stays stays in there. So you're just in like a, a stinky, sweaty suit for a, Love for a good hour. <laughs> That's a nice aroma <laughs> when you unzip, I'm sure. <laughs> George, who are the other um, big cyclists in the, in the F1 world? Because Valtteri Bottas, I've heard, is decent. He goes out with... Tiffany Cromwell, doesn't he, the Aussie road cyclist? Yeah, I mean, he, without a doubt, is the the strongest, I'm, I'm sure. He? He's on the bike always. There was an Italian guy who used to race in F1 called Antonio Giovinazzi. He's, all, he's always out on the bike. Typical Italian, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, up and down the hills, getting his coffee on, on the way, I'm sure. And then I don't really know how many others um, do it. I think... I think Fernando used to do quite a lot, but he, I think he had a big incident and needed surgery at the start of probably two years ago. So I think it's, is that risk reward for us? It's obviously, if you get it wrong while cycling, you can quite easily, well, as, as I'm sure, <laughs> sure you know, you get injured yourself pretty, pretty easily. And I think that's sort of similar for me. Like I love cycling. I love that thrill of going down a hill flat out but I get to a point, I'm like, I need to put the brakes on here. You know, even though the adrenaline's pumping and I, I love that feeling, it's just not worth the risk. And I think that's the same for a lot of the other drivers. You know, they would do it, but sometimes it's just not really worth that risk. Totally, totally can get that. Although saying that, I'm willing to risk it when we're doing our little drive. <laughs> challenge we've got four wheels you've got two wheels so uh, <laughs> you, you've got more chance in my world I, I will flip that question around as well G and I'm going to ask you from the pro peloton um, who you think the best drivers are who fancies themselves oh, as the best drivers there's quite a lot of guys that are into Formula 1 and enjoy it being in the car with some 
most of them tend to drive like they ride. So through me, for instance, is quite okay. left, right, stop, start, you know, kind of a bit like, oh, did you see that <laughs> kid there through me? What kid? Oh, oh yeah. Good job. You missed him. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, who'd be the best? Cav fancies himself on a motorbike. Anyway, he's always giving Carl a load of a load of jip about that. Ed Clancy. He was he was the best when we did our little driving day in, back in 2012. Yeah, Ed would probably be the best. Yeah. Do you guys jump on like motorbikes a lot? Like, is there a crossover there or not really? Nah, just a scooter around town, really. The <laughs> um, the motorbikes, yeah, we're just a bit too... Like I said before, we'd think we're a lot better than we are and we would end up slapping off and it wouldn't be good. So like, we're not allowed to go skiing or anything either. Yeah, but maybe once I stop, I can sort of dabble a bit more in that. George, you will, um, you will do what was traditionally a walk around a circuit before race. You'll do that on a bike, won't you? Yeah, I do that on a bike now. I think... Um... Walking around, you know, a 5k circuit, you're just wasting an hour in the middle of the day, sweating and thinking that I can do one of those laps in 90 seconds. Um, it's not the most efficient use of time. I always jump on the bike on a Friday evening after practice, after my engineers meetings, just to go and clear my head. I think it's, it's quite sort of therapeutic jumping on the bike. It's dark, no one else on the track. And just, you know, getting away from from everything. I think you can be so deep into the details and analyzing everything. And you just get caught up in the whirlwind. And sometimes you just need to take 10, 15 minutes just to get away from it all and, and reset. And I try and do that every every Friday night on, on my bike. You say that, you know, the walk. Is there a certain amount of time? Like, so I was thinking then, if you're riding around there, you could do so many more laps. Yeah, exactly. Is there like <laughs> a mean, set the, amount of time you're allowed, or is it like no, you're allowed I, I to do mean, one lap? No, it's no, you can you can do as much as you want, really. I think historically, it's more to sort of give the engineers a chance to see the track right. and just have a bit of a chat with your team when you're walking around. So instead of you know walking around the track for an hour, we'd sit down in the office and have a coffee and actually use that time a little bit more productively but all of the guys are into their running a lot of people take their bikes to every single race so the engineers it's, it's always good for the engineers to see the track because you know they're looking at the data all the time looking at the videos but if you've not actually physically seen the track and see these little undulations or these little bumps or that curb like this you sometimes lose a sense of what it's truly like yeah to drive around around there so it's sort of it's almost kind of like mandated that if you're a senior engineer working on sort of purely performance, you need to sort of get yourself around the track to, to see what you're working on. We need to get a few of our analyst guys out on the bike. <laughs> we have a few of them <laughs> who are just like, yeah, but just like do this and that. And like, mate, seriously. Did it quite, like, did it quite work like no, that? No, not in the real world, but yeah. <laughs> well, George, it has been fantastic having you on the GTCC. I'm just wondering, G, do we have any GTCC club jerseys? left at the back of the cupboard that we could maybe pass on to George oh, for his next spin. Definitely. We'll dig one out Absolutely. for sure. Yeah, I like that. What size are you, George? Uh, medium. Yeah, I think we've got Get some. I'll probably be the same as, same as you. Quality. Yeah, I'll represent it moving forward. Nice. All right. Well, cheers. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on. And, um, Thank you very much. I'll get that jersey to you and we'll have a blast around the... Oh, all my lights are just turned off. We'll have a blast around some motor racing circuit at some point. Sounds good to me. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Did you know that bananas are bad for monkeys? Did you know about all the pubs in the Houses of Parliament? Do you know how to make a curry in space? It's mind-blowing, but don't take our word for it. We've got a podcast that interviews zookeepers, politicians, astronauts, and everyone in between. And if you want hilarious stories and to learn about the weird and wonderful people of the world, then you should go and listen to our show, Things People Do, with me, Joe Marla. And me, Tom Fordyce. Search for Things People Do wherever you get your podcasts. Gee, I am delighted to announce that we have got Momentus back on board as a sponsor for Series 3 of the GTCC. Momentus, a little bit like you, G, are dedicated to optimising both the mind and body, and they're leading the way for high-performance seekers at all levels. Right, so for those not familiar with Momentus, G, tell us all about their flagship product. Yeah, so PR lotion is something I've used on my body for years, Tom. It basically delivers bicarb directly to your muscles via your skin and bypasses the gut, which I don't know if you've ever drunk bicarb, Tom, but that's a big plus. 
The best time to use it, I find, is an hour and a half before your workout on Zwift or out on the road or whatever you're doing. And it's not too sticky either. It doesn't get stuck in your hairs if you've forgotten to shave. And it definitely helps me train harder. All of this is true, G. It is actually scientifically proven to improve performance and decrease muscle soreness and helps you make all those training goals. If you want to get your hands on some PR lotion, Momentus are giving GTCC members, that's you listening right now, yes you, 25% off. Give them the code G. Just head over to PRLotion.com and use the code GTCC2022 to get 25% off today. Enjoy. Tom, Zwift are back for their third season sponsoring the GTCC. Which means our Wednesday 6pm group rides continue. Exactly. Just hop on your trainer, open up the Zwift app and join the group ride. You get to ride alongside us, all our club members and wear the in-game GTCC jersey. And if you're new to Zwift, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial today. During this season of the pod, we're going to be walking you through all the new stuff we've been trying out on the app. Just think of us as your testing team. So Chairman Tom, what have you been trying this week? This week, G, I would like to encourage everyone to try the Z Racing Series, the more competitive side of Zwift. It's now more accessible than ever and you can easily find the exact right category for you as Zwift now calculates it on your past riding. All activity within Zwift is monitored so it develops an e-passport for every user to determine which level you can enter. You can race at your level or above, just not in categories below your level for obvious cheaty reasons. So this does mean G, for now at least until you retire and get fat, I won't be racing against you. The Z Racing Series lets you try a different course each week. It's a great way to test out your legs as we hit winter. And guess what? There is a race every single hour of the day. Oh, cracking. I think that's a great challenge for December. Give racing a go before Christmas or even set it up as a New Year goal. Right, Chairman Tom, time for the final any other business before Christmas. What have you got? Yeah, that's right, G. You may have seen the Christmas quiz going on on our Insta stories this week, inspired by our frankly terrible knowledge of Christmas trees that we displayed in last week's episode. So I have got a couple of those questions to run past you today. Are you ready for your Christmas quiz? Let's do it. Question number one, Geraint. Which country did the modern day tradition of a Christmas tree originate from? I'll make this multiple choice for you. Was it A, Norway, B, Denmark, or C, Germany? Uh, I reckon the Scandinavian ones. No, I'll go Norway. Do you know what, G? I would also have gone for Norway because of the Norway spruce. I don't know if your brain was working the same way. But uh, producer Lou insists that the answer is Germany. Uh, no um, way. Here comes your second question. The assistant of which famous inventor first put lights on a Christmas tree? It's a great question, this. A, James Watt. B, Thomas Edison. Or, <laughs> or C, Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, well, that laugh makes me think it's not C. <laughs> I've never heard of... Do you know who Tim Berners-Lee Tim Berners invented the internet? Ah. I've only heard of Thomas Edison, so what did he invent? The, well, this may give you too much of a steer, the light bulb. I thought so. Yeah, him. I've got over Edison. I feel I've somewhat given you that one, but it is the correct answer. Question number three. What is the most common variety of Christmas tree? Is it A, the Nordman fir? Is it B, the... <laughs> Sorry, I've got to stop laughing and giving away the answers. Is it B, Welshman fur, or is it C, Norway spruce? <laughs> right then. So, I'm going to use logic here. You laughed at Welshman fur, so it's not that. It can't be Norway spruce, because they, apparently they come from Germany, so I'm going to go for the first one. The Nordman fur yeah. is the correct answer. Welshman fur is what we see on your upper lip for most of the year. Um, you have... You have two out of three. Uh, and your final question, number four. Roughly how old, Garen, is a typical Christmas tree? Mm. Is it A, three years old, B, seven years old, or C, 15 years old? I reckon they take a while to grow. I'll, I'll say 15. It's seven. Bugger. Seven to ten, says producer Lou. That's so ridiculous. your final score at the end of that quiz is 50%. Well, is it, do they all, can they just keep growing for 15 years old and just get a really big one? Well, yours is massive, so maybe yours is a 15-yearer. Yeah, I reckon you should give me that one. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So that was your Christmas quiz. Next up, we have had a comment in from Theo Herman Simka. Unfortunately, it's in Dutch. Um, but seeing as you practiced your Dutch with Annemiek last week, I thought you could have a go at the sentence that I'm going to send you. Maybe someone can translate it for us. Um, when, that, when I say someone can translate it for us, maybe we should put the words on our social feeds because if they try and translate how you're going to say it, we could be here for a while. I'll huh. just pick the first sen- sentence for you. You should have that now on your phone. Give that one a crack. Oh, you want me to try and read it? Oh, yeah. jeepers. Wel mogen ze morgen om als de gesbot de nieuwen atleten vinden waar zich bovendien van sporteren. I think they're basically saying, "Gee, you're doing a cracking job. Tom's Tom's rubbish, but he'll get there one day." <laughs> well, the last word must be support, supporteren. So if it's on about Anamik, um. She did say she was retiring, so maybe it's been great supporting her or I'm going to have to support someone else. Maybe me. Maybe that's what he's saying. He'll support me because Annemiek's stopping. But if I retire at the same time, then he is really screwed, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see what our Dutch listeners can come up with. In the meantime, a huge shout out to Fiona Mundell, who has signed up for the Tour of Cambridge race in June 2023. That will be her very first race under the GTCC name. Sarah Watmore and Paul Felton have also entered. Anyone else signing up to race next year, let us know. And don't forget, you can now race for the GTCC. All that's left, Garen, is to say a huge happy Christmas to all our GTCC members. We'll be having a little break over Christmas, but we will be back with an absolutely massive episode in the new year with the current Tour de France champion. Maybe see you on Zwift over the break. Amazing. See you there. Have a great Christmas, guys. Nadolik, Klauen, and Paub. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to Club Secretary Louise Gwilliam, Heads of Music Emma Hickman and Frank Beecher, Head of Social Archie Biltcliffe, and our Honorary President Mike Carr. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Ciao, ciao. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. <laughs>